0: Oh, Niranjanam Nityam Anantarupam Bhakta Nukam Padritavigraham Vai Isha Vataram Parameshamidyam Tangra Jananim Saradam Devim Ramakrishnam Jagat Gurum Padapadme Tayo Pranamami Muhurumu muhu. Namasri Yati Rajaya Vivekananda Surai Satchid Swami So we were studying the sixth chapter of Swami Vivekananda's Karma Yoga. This The title is The Non-Attachment is Complete self abnegation So that's the idea which Swami Vivekananda Ji was illustrating in the last class we saw that we even need not believe in God, but if we are practicing unselfishness in our life, we will find that is the greatest transcending factor. The biggest paradox is the more we think of ourselves, the more we feel that we are as if Encapsulated with our worries, our tensions, the more we can think of others by making myself secondary, the more we can move out, reach out, and annihilate the ego as much as possible. The biggest paradox, that's the biggest paradox. The less we think of our own self, the better we are, the better we find we can transcend even in our day to day life. The cause of our illness is our worries, tensions. And the best way of getting rid of it is to move out, reach out. In the spiritual sense, to get liberated means actually the annihilation of the ego. The ego is the false ego. There is nothing as such called this limited individuality. The word individuality itself speaks of that what the word "individual" means? Individual—that which cannot be divided—is individual. We are not individuals yet. When Swami Vivekananda was delivering lecture on Jnana Yoga in the West, and when the idea came that at last the spiritual liberation means the mergence, the the emergence of this limited I in the cosmic amnes. The idea in Vedanta is this Atman, the sense of individuality that I feel within, the I, I, if I close my all the Indriyas, my eyes, my ears, my sense of touch, smell, taste, I stop all of them. I am not interacting with the world. I close my eyes. I try to keep my mind free of thoughts. At last I will find that I cannot get rid of the idea which is constantly emanating from within, that is I, I, I. And that I is localized. I'm not interacting with the world, but still when that I is emanating from me, I have a sense that it is localized. It is located at certain place. It, that I am sitting in one place, from there my mind is as if spreading out to the entire universe. Uh, Swami Vivekananda used to say very nicely that this, our individuality is like a circle, which has a center, but which has no circumference. Even if the science comes and says me that this is the last galaxy behind which nothing is there. They never say, I'm just for a, uh, example, I'm just stating. Till now they have never found the end of the universe. And if by chance we say that the science says that this is the end of the universe. With my mind, I can still f- reach out With my imagination, I can still reach out. Nothing can stop me. So, as per as my mind is concerned, it is limitless. It's a circle without any circumference. But I cannot jump out of myself. So that's the way in English we say we cannot jump out of this my psychophysical existence. However, I may try, at last, I end up with the idea that the I, 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 which is emanating, is localized somewhere within me. The assertion of Vedanta is something which is true. How it is true? Because it's not only the Vedanta philosophy. Throughout the world, any religion, any religion, people will say all the religions are so varied. Yes, it's varied as per the doctrines and dogmas are concerned. But if you go to the life of the mystics, those who were not satisfied by mere belief, they intensely led that life were highly contemplative. And those mystics, when they are speaking, if you just listen to the language of the mystics, somehow you will find they're all speaking of that unity experience, where the small I dissolves and it merges with the universal amnes. They all, in the Christian mystics, in Islam, the Sufis, they all speak in the Sufis, in Islam, Al-Haq means the truth. Al-Haq means the ultimate truth. Al-Haq. And the Sufis were considered as blasphemous. Why? They added just An before that Al-Haq. An-Al-Haq becomes I am the truth. So as for the doctrines and dogmas are concerned, people thought that these people are blasphemous. They are just how can they say I am the Lord? But these peoples have actually reached that domain of the mystics, where through that spiritual realization, they went beyond the small ego, which submerges with a universal amnes. And that's what Swamiji is speaking is the only goal of religion, which can come through contemplation in one way. You dive deep within your eye at last to find the eyes no more there. And another way is move out. I can go within or you can move out, reach out, forgetting yourself, just thinking of the welfare of the entire humanity doing good to others, not with the idea that at last that with all my attempt to do goodness to the world, I can reform the world. The world will never be reformed. It is a dog's curly tail. However you t- try, it always remains, that, cur- that curly tail remains always curly. You can never straighten it. All the problems of the world just manifests in a different way. With all our reformation, you try to solve the problem in the physical plane. You find that with all our physical uh, well-being, the more the problems are now in mental. With affluence, you find that the disease. Although we most probably we have got rid of the physical hardships, now we find we cannot just deal with our own mind. So this is just one example we are giving throughout your life you will find that as in the words of Swami Vivekananda, the evils of the world are like the rheumatic patient. A rheumatic patient where has rheumatism has a pain in the joints. Most probably the knees are paining. You massage nicely, the pain is gone, but it just shifts. Most probably the ankle starts paining. So it's just shifting. The problems problems are not solved. just finds expression in a different way. So not with the idea that I'm going to solve the problems of the world, not with that idea, I move out. I move out with the idea that somehow altruism is in my genes. It's it's a fact. When I see a person in some suffering, the compassion wells up. I don't have the credit for it. It is in my genes, I have been built in such a way. Out of that, I becomes a channel of that compassion and try to reach out and help him. Not with the idea that my help will actually solve the problem. Problem remains in one way or other, but that's the way I gradually self-educate myself. I forget my ego. I give others the more importance. And that's the way of spiritual liberation Whatever help, little help you do to the world, that of course <clears throat> has its own utility, but at the same time, but that is just the side product. The main thing is it actually results in transcendence, gives you tremendous joy, immense joy by dissolving the ego, by relating to the entire world. And that way we find Swami Vivekananda, in the last class we found it, how nice the definition he's giving of God, which all can accept, even an atheist can accept. What? Unselfishness is God. As simple as that, unselfishness is God. Remove the selfishness, merge this this boundary of your ego immediately that the amness with which you're relating to the entire world is something which speaks of transcendence. Even in our day-to-day life, when I say that I'm diseased, when I say I'm diseased, when my consciousness gets localized, when I'm throbbing with health, I find life is throbbing through my entire body. I am not aware of any particular part of my body. When I say I'm diseased, the moment I start saying I have a headache, when I am healthy, the I was I found that the life force was throbbing through the entire body. Now it got localized to the head. I have a heartache. My knees are aching. My back is paining. The moment the consciousness gets more and more localized. That speaks of dis-ease. You lose your ease. The more it can be diffused, the more happier you are. A small child is happy because its consciousness is diffused. So that's the thing which Swami Vivekananda is bringing. That let us, the doctrines and dogmas have their importance as long as it helps us to diffuse our so-called this disease state of existence and relate to the cosmic amnesia the more we can do that through the doctrines and dogmas or without that the more spiritual we are so that's why religion need not be conventional conventional religion has its own place we need need those stumps those uh, what do you say the those uh, our crutches we need We are not all that strong that without crutches we grow. Then we may be needing some crutches. But a time should come that crutches should fall. We should stand on our own leg. As in the words of Swami Vivekananda, very nicely speaking, that it is very good to be born in a church, but it is horrible to die there. So we have to outgrow. This church, the temples, the rituals, everything has a meaning. Till it helps us to grow as Sri Ramakrishna used to say, that these all conventional religion is like the fence. When the small plant is a sapling, it needs that fence to protect itself. But once the tree has grown, still if you think, if you say that the fence is needed, that's the proof that the tree has not grown. If the fence is needed even after years, that's the proof that the tree has not grown. So that's not what is deserved. Yes, for the timing, the fence is required, but the fence should fall off once the tree has grown. So all this so-called the do's and don'ts by which we bind ourselves, has some meaning till we have the realization to maintain our integrity. They have some purpose, but they should fall off. Once we can totally overhaul our personality by transcending more and more that so called that selfish self in the words of Ramakrishna Bajjat Ami the rascal ego that's what he used to say the more we can get rid of it the more spiritual we are so with this background now let us continue with the words of Swami Vivekananda in his lecture we will read and then continue our discussion on it to come back to one of our main points we say that we cannot do good without at the same time doing some evil or do evil without doing some good. Knowing this, how can we work? There have therefore been sects in the world who have in an astoundingly preposterous way preached slow suicide as the only means to get out of the world because if a man leaves, He has to kill poor little animals and plants or do injury to something or someone. So according to them, the only way out of the world is to die. The Jains have preached this doctrine as their highest ideal. This teaching seems to be very logical. But the true solution is found in the Bhagavad Gita. It is a theory of non-attachment. To be attached to nothing while doing our work of life. So Swami Vivekananda is now bringing out a very pertinent point that sometimes we find that in all the religion, the idea of tapas is there, that in the name of self-annihilation, what we do, we start starving ourselves, do all the austerity which means Uh, the annihilation of this physical body in spiritual sense does it really help that's a big question apparently it feels that yes it's quite good even uh, what to speak of killing other animals that to get rid of my so called impulses desires the more I just uh, have some rigorous discipline on myself it's uh, helpful but actually the problem is not with our physique. it is a problem is with the mind the relation of the mind with this body is just like the way my body is related to the nails the nails grow i paired them off the other again the nails come out as long as the body is there the nails go on coming out i paired them it again come out similarly as long as the mind is there in the in uh, vedanta in this, uh, the oriental religions, the idea of reincarnation is there. As long as the mind is there, we go on reincarnating. These bodies after bodies will come. So if we have really have to kill, it is not the killing of the body. We have to kill the mind. The real suicide in the spiritual sense is the killing of the mind. <clears throat> the mind which has actually created this sense of limited identity with all its thousands of desires. Unless we get rid of it, there can never be any liberation as such. This physical body may go, again it comes. I may annihilate, but as long as the desires are there, it will again bring another body. So what's the way out? The way out is non-attachment. You may say, how it helps. In Vedanta, the idea is very nice. Just let us say common example in the summer season, the fan is revolving. Now how to stop the fan? You will never go and just try to forcefully hold the blades and try to stop it. You will be injured, the fan will be damaged. Nothing else will happen. That's like the suicide. What I do, I just switch off. The connection of the electricity with the fan that is switched off. And then what happens, does the fan stop immediately? No, because of its past momentum, it continues to revolve for some time to stop ultimately. So that's the way. Trying to just forcefully stop the fan is damaging the fan, damaging yourself, hurting yourself, damaging the fan. It in no way is going to uh, have some constructive output, some uh, positive output. The way to stop the fan, just switch it off. And slowly, gradually, it, is, it will lose that the, the motion, the, uh, the inertia of motion that gets expanded out. To, at last, you find the fan has stopped. So, that, that's the idea which Swami is, speak, is speaking of, as I mean, with reference to Bhagavad Gita. That I cannot, <clears throat> the past, all my, the mind with my past desires, past sanskaras, is already there. It is has it has its own force. What is the way out? Yes, I have to get rid of it. Then how to get rid of it? Switch off. What is the switching off? That I all behind every action you will find there is an attachment. How that attachment comes in the Yoga Sutra, very nicely it has been spoken of. That the moment that the consciousness unconditioned consciousness the non-dual consciousness because of ignorance we don't know how it happens but it, <clears throat> that's the fact <clears throat> what happens it gets localized even in a micro body forget about us such a complicated sophisticated being even in a microbe the, what's the three thing happens from ajnana comes asmita the sense of amnes from that comes the other three things raga, dvesha, abhinivesha Just take an ordinary experiment that in a petri dish, I see through the microscope, I see many randomly moving particles. I think they are all inanimate. The science teacher to prove that they are not all inanimate. Maybe there are some dust particles, but there are some living beings. So what they do, they put a drop of nutrient in the center and immediately you will find among all those randomly moving particles, apparently randomly moving particles, a few have gathered direction. They're moving towards it. And if you put some toxin, they immediately will move away from it. And that shows that there is life. They're responding to the stimuli. And so life, the beginning of life from where it is coming, from the sense of this ego, now the question of attachment, aversion, everything comes. All the action emanates from that, that's the basic thing from where it has all the actions has emanated, has started. And we are going on through eternity as if evolving, why we are evolving? You know that even the small microbe behind that, that non-dual conscious principle which is ever perfect is there. It is echoing through that micro body, it is saying you're eternal. But this micro body finds it is not eternal. A little change in stimulus, a little change in the atmospheric condition, kills it, annihilates it. Now, out of ignorance, it wants to manifest that its already perfect existence, which is echoing through this body, reflecting through this body, it wants to materialize in the in the so-called physical plane. And that actually speaks of the scientific evolution, how the evolution is happening, the echo. Of that perfect non dual consciousness behind us, which is saying, You are eternal, you are ever perfect, is echoing through that micro body. And the microbe thinks that as a microbe, I am eternal. But it finds it's never possible. And now it starts conglomerating with the other microbes. There's a division of labor that you do the circulation, I do the digestion, you do the respiration. And at last, we find the sophisticated body like the human being still trying to become eternal. That's all the science, uh, the technology that is trying to improve the quality of life to make it more, uh, the lifespan more and more, to increase the lifespan, to increase the quality. Why it's already perfect The conscious being is somehow out of ignorance thinking that this eternity which I am thinking of has to be realized through this physical body. So this is the product of the ignorance. So how I can go back to my perfect, uh, that state of existence. So evolution, even Vedanta agrees to it. But as per science, the evolution is a straight line. It goes on. But in Vedanta they say, we start from the perfection because of ignorance, the entire evolution is there. When that wisdom arises that I can never Uh, realize that perfection, which is echoing behind me in the physical plane, I cannot find expression of the unlimited in the exist in, in the limited world It can never be done. And what there's no need for it, I'm already perfect. Then there's this retreat comes. I now start retreating that I'm already perfect. Why this futile attempt, which is out of ignorance. So this is the question where the question of detachment comes. That I have unnecessarily attached myself out of ignorance with Raga Dvesha Vinivesha with attachment and the fight and flight response. The fight and flight response is also actually a way of expression of your attachment. As I'm attached to life, so I flee away from all the dangers. So the fight and flight response is also a negative way of expressing the attachment. So this attachment is the thing which is bounding, is binding me to this physical existence. Once that realization downs, I have to be non-attached. It is a total mental phenomenon, psychological phenomenon. It has nothing to do with the so-called as such physical existence. So just if you annihilate, as long as the mind is there, it again creates a body. And sometimes we say that the suicide actually results in a very, uh, evil degraded birth. It's a very, why, uh, why it happens? It's a very common thing. When you are extremely hungry, suppose you were, you are just having a meal, you're relishing it. And suddenly while taking food, you'd started some quarrel with someone and out of anger, you threw the plate, went out. Now, as you're terribly hungry, now you won't have any discrimination. Whatever you find you eat, you can have discrimination when you still have the chance of choosing because I'm not that hungry, I can choose that what to eat and what not to eat. When you're terribly hungry, you will just grab whatever you get. So those who just somehow deliberately get rid of their physical body, the tremendous desires and everything is there in the mind. Suddenly it was interrupted. Now that craving is so much, that each and every soul after death has a choice to choose the body as per the environment in which its samskaras will uh, be, uh, will fulfill, will, will fructify. But as because of that deliberate act, it's tremendous hunger doesn't allow it to be sufficiently poised to choose that. It just takes birth anywhere in any situation. And that actually speaks of degradation. So suicide is not the way out. Be detached. Be detached and gradually allow that, that the motion of the karma to stop, to gradually slow down and at last to stop. Swami Vivekananda used to give an example. Suppose there is a, there are two wheels that connected by an axle. At the time of Swami Vivekananda still the fan was uh, yet to be invented. So he's giving a Another example, very different example, that two wheels are connected by the axle. So if you get hold of one of the wheels and cut the axle, the other wheel will go on revolving for some time to stop at last. And that is the idea of detachment. That cut the axle, the soul is somehow being connected with this physical existence. If you just detach it, in the body goes on for some time with its as because of the prarab, the past, all impulses to slow down, to, to exhaust its past action, and then that the question of the real liberation comes. So, that's the idea Swamiji is speaking of. So, let us just read it, and then you will find that the idea now becomes clear that what he's speaking to come back to one of our main points. We say that we cannot do good without at the same time doing some evil or do evil without doing some good. That in this life, pure good is not possible. So what's the way out? So let us end this life. Knowing this, how can we work? There have therefore been sects in this world who have in an astoundingly preposterous way preached slow suicide as the only means to get out of the world. Because if a man leaves, he has to kill poor little animals and plants or do injury to something or someone. So According to them, the only way out of the world is to die. The Jains have preached this doctrine as their highest ideal. This teaching seems to be very logical, but the true solution is found in the Gita. It is a theory of non-attachment, to be attached to nothing while doing our work of life. Even in the modern uh, science, modern psychology, if you find so that this is the same idea. You will find this reflected. That what's the idea of individuality is the idea of, in as in the words of the Vedanta, karta and bhakta, That I am the doer, I am the enjoyer. In the modern psychology, it has been studied in a very uh, elaborate, way, vivid way that I am neither the enjoyer nor the doer. Na karta, na bhakta. What has been spoken of in the Vedanta? You will find that, am I really the enjoyer? No, if you see the nature of our so-called enjoyments, you will find actually it is not we who are enjoying. We are actually having this happiness has been made as a tool to do some things by which the nature is sustained. It is a tool, it is not actually something which is meant to uh, be given by nature to us as a prize, as a gift, no. The nature very cunningly is using it as a tool to make us do something, by that it is propagated. The nature of happiness for any, any all the happiness which we have in this life at last can be boiled down to three desires. Fulfillment of these three desires gives us happiness. In our scriptures, it has been spoken of as Putraishana, Vitaishana and Yashayishana. Means the desire for progeny, the desire for wealth and desire for name and fame. All the three, at last you will find, is related with the sustenance of nature. With the wealth, I sustain myself. First I have to sustain myself and then I can think of propagation. So, wealth and Putraishana, Viteshana, we easily understand. But yes, for name and fame, sometimes we say, how is it related? It is also related. In the animal kingdom, if you see that the male lion, it has its own territory. It won't allow any other male lion to be there because it knows that if it with its might can have its territory, it has the the greater chance to propagate its genes. So yesha, the name and fame, that actually again is related to your propagation of genes, even in the ma- even in the even as a human beings, that why we want to be established and all, at last we will find to have a good family so that we can have children. So it is all the working of the nature, all the yeshanas and at last it gives us happiness. Is that happiness meant for us? No, if you see the nature of happiness, you'll easily find out any, any happiness for how it comes by the fulfillment of any of these three desires. Maybe it is Putraishana, Vitaishana, Yashashana. This is your desire for progeny, desire for wealth, desire for name and fame. With the fulfillment, I get happiness. What's the nature of the happiness? The moment any creature, not to speak of only human beings, any creature, the moment it reaches, it fulfills that desire, the moment it fulfills. There's a tremendous happiness. It reaches the peak. The first thing is it reaches the peak, but it now doesn't stay there. The next thing, the next second truth is it evaporates. Immediately it evaporates. The third truth is we always remember the peak. We forget the evaporation. You find that when I, again, that now something has actually drawn me to enjoy something Previously, I have gone through the same experience, but I never remember that I'm supposed to remember both. But my memory is filtered. That's the working of the nature. That's why all the crimes which has been done, no one thought they will be caught. They all thought only the, that's the so-called this colorful side of it. It never came to their mind that I may be caught, that I may be in such very wretched condition. They never thought it. Because the nature has made us that's to pursue; otherwise, we won't pursue. If we just remember the hardships of it, and uh, along with the, the little for the little time I get, went to that climax, and all which is associated with so much of hardships, if I always remember that, it won't motivate me to do it. So the nature has built us in such a way that we forget that. You, even in our day-to-day life, we will find. You will find the plot, the past is always golden. We say our childhood was so nice. No one, you will find, most of the people will say that the past was so nice. I am going through a very uh, suffering situation that all the situations are so bad at present. I'm suffering at present. The past was nice. There again, there's a question of filtered memory. We were going through the hardships, even as a small ch- child, Whenever we were going through our education, everywhere the hardship was there. In schooling bullying was there, school the, everything was there, all the hardships were there but we forget that. Only the things which gave us happiness that we remember. This is the working of the nature. That's the third thing, we forget the, all the so called endeavours, we only remember the peak, evaporation, we forget. Fourth, you will find more happiness in anticipation than in the act itself. Throughout your life, you will find. Why? Once you have anticipated your mind that I will do such and such thing, immediately the nature knows that its purpose is done. You have been motivated. So if the morning you have planned that in the evening, you're going to have some party, you're going to have some, you're going to some hotel or restaurant and with your friends, you have a party, and the morning from the morning you're feeling so excited. And when you are already in the party, you find it's so boring, it's so monotonous. Why it happens? Because the nature has already made me do the thing which by which it will sustain itself. So there's no need to give joy anymore. So if you see the nature of happiness, you will find that how constantly we are being fooled by the nature. That as if by uh, fulfilling our desires, we're going to get happiness. No, it is an unending, that's illusion which speaks of hedonistic treadmill. In a treadmill you're constantly running, you go nowhere. It's a hellish, ever running, never reaching not a distant glimpse of shore. So that's, so now the question comes, are you enjoying? No, the one that the sense of identity is actually hinged with these two ideas that I'm the doer and I'm the enjoyer. So to certain extent we can understand that I'm not the enjoyer, but am I not the doer? Even modern psychology will say, you know, you are not the doer. There are so many experiments. The famous one of the famous experiments uh, of uh, Max Planck Institute, most probably, that's I'm just exactly forgetting that the famous there's an experiment that it's a very simple experiment that uh, you can press a button with any of your hand, either right hand or left hand. The moment you press it, the time will be displayed and in which hand you have pressed that you also know the others were observing, they also know. So what's the aim of this experiment? The moment you decide that I will press the button with my left hand. So immediately the moment you think, immediately with with the moment you take the decision, you do it. So that will uh, give us the time which is displayed that this is the time when I decided and I pressed the button. It has been, this experiment has been repeated many number of times with many individuals. But when the experiment was going on, their brain was under scan. It was scanned to see that what all this uh, fluxes are uh, being recorded there. And it has been found very interestingly that in all the cases invariably and with an average about seven seconds earlier, the decision was taken. We somehow feel that when I have decided, then only have pressed. But the brain can scan shows that actually it was the decision was taken seven seconds earlier. It speaks something spooky. That's what they say. A lot of experiments continue previously it was never understood how it happens. Now the other experiment speaks that how it happens, it speaks actually we, we did not we don't decide. Uh, It is actually, I won't go to the details of that experiment. They say very nicely that there is not not one mind. There are so many mental modules, which so-called as if constitutes our mind that each each mental module has its own fixed stimuli response conditioning, each mental module. And at a time, a particular module gets activated. The module which gets activated it acts as per stimulus response conditioning giving the person a feeling that you have decided we never decide one of the that's just uh, one experiment will clarify the split brain experiment so that's because of some surgical regions there's a split between the left and the right brain of so many person and an experiment has been run very nice experiment a split brain experiment that if some display is done on the left side in such a way that only the left eye can see for such a person who has a split brain whose left and right hemisphere are separated. If you flash something on the left side and the left eye can see. Previously, the idea was that this split doesn't in in, in any way affect the person. But this experiment have shown that this person do of course behave in a different way. What was the different way he was behaving? when it was flashed in the left side, that get up and just start walking. The person was sitting in a place and that was that walk was the instruction. Immediately the person stood up and started walking. Those who were conducting the experiment, they asked why you stood up, why are you walking? Immediately he told, just I'm feeling a bit thirsty. I'm just going to have a glass of water. And they were all surprised. They all knew it was the instruction which was flashed, which made him walk. But he's saying, I'm just going to have a glass of water. What has happened? There's a crisscross in our, this nervous system. Whatever we see from the left eye is actually registered in the right brain. From the right eye, it goes to the left brain. So now as for this person, there's a split. What he saw with his left eye was registered in the right brain and the right brain is just an autobiographical brain. Whatever it happens, it just registers. And the left brain is the language. It's the interpreter. It's the language brain. Now, for most of us, when it is connected, that immediately it is passed. That okay. That for for me, most probably, I would have told. I've seen the signage. And that's why I'm walking. But for the split brain experiment, what has happened? That there is no communication between the left, uh, the right, and the left. So that nothing went there, but the left brain immediately invented something to interpret. It's a propaganda mission. Because if I say that without any reason I'm walking, the others will think I'm mad. I'm cranky. That's why suddenly i have started walking. So I have to prove myself. I'm a beneficial member of the society, benefactors, I'm effective, I'm beneficial. Immediately the brain creates a language, not only it creates a language, it makes me believe that it is true. That's why all the fanatics are very genuine. They never feel that I am my belief is not correct. In this world, there is never a fight between the right and wrong. It is a fight between the perspectives. Everyone is thinking I'm correct from my own perspective. And that's the split which has been caused by all our biases. There's no surgical split. We all get, have a split because of our biases, tremendous biases, and those biases actually makes a particular module to get activated and that takes its decision, giving us a feeling, I am deciding. The entire world of advertisement is based on that. To activate a particular module and make you believe that you have made the choice. Entire world of advertisement is based on that. They open the TV, each and every advertisement is based on basic principle. that after all, you are not the mind. You are not the doer. They know how to activate a particular module and make you believe that you have decided. That's how we have been fooled around. So in the non-attachment, how it helps. So all the mental modules are there, not a particular situation, they are getting activated. But when you will find in your life, when you are in default state and I'm relaxing, I'm not in my office, I'm not with my family, just sitting and relaxing. That's the time I find my mind is behaving extremely in a queer fashion that I think, let me just sit down and relax, not to worry about anything. And suddenly a thought comes and you are with the thought for some time and suddenly you find just diametrically opposite thought comes and disturbs your mind. Your mind is getting assailed by so many thoughts when you are in the relaxed mode. So that's why people don't so as such enjoy relaxation They always want to be involved in something if you're relaxed, then you find what this prank the mind is playing with you. What is happening This all these mental modules has been nurtured by you in the particular situations of life. Your ego is the one which gets hooked with these mental modules and they are nurtured, your ego is nurturing them. When you are in office, you are a different person. When you are with a family, you are a different person. When you are with yourself, you are a different person. And why you are all different person? Because the particular modules are getting activated. And I have not changed them. They are quite strong. It's like in a vacation, all the grandchildren and came, and the nanny is sitting with the newspaper, and all the grandchildren want to be pampered by the nanny. They all want to get uh, get the attention of the nanny. That's like the, all the mental modules. Now, what's the way out? That as we have told that, just again take another example, that there are so many birds whom I was feeding. Every day at a particular time they come, I feed them. Now one day I decide I won't feed them anymore. Then what happens? They come. I don't feed them. But their expectation is there. They won't stop immediately. The next day again they come. Now the question of patience and perseverance comes swami swami vivekananda told the entire spiritual journey can be explained with three p's purity patience perseverance it can explain the entire spirituality purity the resolution to keep the mind without any this des- uh, so called desires worries tensions i want to keep but it's not easy the all the already the pampered birds will again come so i should have pers- patience and perseverance that if For two days I don't give them any uh, cereals and on the third day I again yield. Then again the expectation is again uh, renewed, they again start coming. So you have to have that perseverance and the patience, no more, no more. And then they start gradually falling off and it speaks the entire spirituality and nothing else. And that is what the thing Swami is saying, it is a theory of non-attachment, to be attached to nothing. While doing our work of life, once this these expectations is grown, they fall off. That renders the freedom. That the that I, and this all these mental modules are mutually related. I cannot this sense of this limited individuality cannot stay with them without without them, and those mental modules also cannot stay without the I. So there are two ways. In a jnana yoga, I constantly hammer that I. To get rid of the hub of the will of my personality. If the eye is gone, all the spokes, all the spikes, which speaks of the mental modules, they all at a time fall off. For that we need a tremendous willpower. Very few have that. For most of us, Karma Yoga is the way. That gradually through patience, through perseverance, by practicing non-attachment, I allow the spikes to fall off, rendering me free. So that's the thing Swamiji is indicating by the word, this non-attachment. Know that you are separated entirely from the world. Though you are in the world and that whatever you may be doing in it, you are not doing that for your own sake. Any action that you do for yourself will bring its effect to bear upon you. If it is a good action, you will have to take the good effect and if bad you will have to take the bad effect but any action that is done for your is not done for your own sake whatever it be will have no effect on you there is to be find a very expressive sentence in our scriptures embodying this idea which is actually in the gita if he kills the whole universe or be himself killed he is neither the killer nor the killed, when he knows that he is not acting for himself at all. Just take the example of Arjuna, at the, with full confidence he came to the battlefield and seeing his own kith and kin on the opponent's side, his nerves started failing. Why? That when he came with that confidence, it was the confidence of that ego. And when the conflict again, the nerves started failing again, what has happened now that ego is getting related with the Keith and King, the family members he's seeing among the so-called the enemies. And he was totally exhausted. And then in the entire Gita, what the Lord is teaching that it is he who has the ultimate reality. He's finding expression as this energy. This universe is nothing but energy. Shakti the rim and that energy is not chaotic it finds expression in rhythm everywhere you find that rhythm everything that ultimate reality which is beyond the phenomenon which finds expression in the phenomenon it finds expression through that rhythm there's a wonderful rhythm everywhere you find that it's, we are bound by the laws not only the physical laws even the moral laws are also the ultimate laws we cannot break them in our attempt to break the laws, we break ourselves. If a person thinks that let me jump out of a 20-story building because I don't believe in gravitation, he's not going to fly. Whether he believe it or, or not, he's going to crash and die. So similarly, all the so-called do's and don'ts, it's not, nowadays we have a feeling that those things is uh, totally relative. I don't believe, it's all hogwash, you just see, in once, not it didn't take even hundred years for the entire human civilization to be at the brink of getting annihilated, because we thought all those so-called that we that every all the so-called uh, perennial f- uh, philosophy speaks of a reverential uh, relation with the nature, and science started saying that knowledge is power. That the nature by itself doesn't uh, is not going to give its wealth. You have to snatch away from it. How can you snatch away? The knowledge is the power. With that, you can uh, bring out the oil from the core of the earth. All the way we are can exploit the nature is because of that science. And at last, we find that what what has happened? We find it, it just it has taken only hundred years. We are finding that we are almost at the uh, bring off annihilation. So what? that we cannot break the laws of nature. This is It has its own rhythm. By trying to break it, we break ourselves. Just the man who doesn't believe in gravitation and jumps out of a 20-story building thinking he will fly. He's not going to fly. And that's why Sri Ramakrishna used to say a very nice thing. When someone asked, is there something called absolute truth? He told, yes, of course it's there. And then he asked, what's the absolute truth? He never spoke of God. What he told was very interesting. The man who was always dwelling in the awareness of God, never spoke of God. He know that that's not the language which the other person will understand. I have to speak in a language with that person understand. He's saying a very simple thing. If you take chili, you are bound to have the hot sensation. You may say, why, how, what it speaks of the absolute truth. It Do you speak of the absolute truth that the chili is hot. This I can never deny. If, now it's my choice when I'm having my food in a separate place, some chilies are kept, whether I will take it or not, it is my choice, but I will take it, but I won't have that hot sensation. It's never going to be, so truth is truth. It is lying in its own place. Whether I abide by it or break it, that's my choice. And at last the annihilation the, the question of breaking is not the breaking of the law. We can never break the law. If we can break the law, it's never a law. Law can never be broken. We are last find we have broken ourselves. So that's the thing we find is being expressed in the Gita. That when God finds expression as the universe, He always finds expression as Yagya. The idea of Yagya in Gita is very interesting. It's the idea of interdependence. In this universe, we never stand segregated as a separate existence where the entire world is there as if to feed me. No, it's a constant interaction. I have to depend for my existence on the entire world. And at last I am annihilating, my body gets annihilated and it becomes the source of future life. If you go to the uh, center of Australia, where you find it's desert, there's no soil. How the soil comes into existence, where there's no soil, no trees, the soil comes when the so-called organic beings die and decompose and that's how the soil for this all the decomposed beings mixing up with the sand in course of time gradually evolve the soil and then only you can think of a new plant if you just read the bhagavatam there the idea is there that Yashoda, the king or the mother of krishna one day krishna as a child you know the children have the habit of taking just putting anything in their mouth. So the Krishna, the baby Krishna, child Krishna has put some uh, small mud, uh, what you say, a module, a small uh, 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 bundle of mud in his mouth. And the mother to take it out was trying her best and at last when the child was not yielding to his command, her command, Yeshwada came and pressed the cheeks of the child to forcefully bring it out And she saw the entire universe in that lump of soil. And sometimes we think these are all, uh, what do you say that uh, mythological stories, but all the mythological stories have some uh, wonderful truth behind it. What is the truth? If we have the eyes of Yashoda, we also could have seen the entire world in that lump of soil. As we were telling if there is no life there cannot be soil you cannot find soil in mars if there is no life there is no soil it is a organic matter which decomposes and in the process gradually gets converted into soil so if where there is soil there must be a tree where there is a tree there must be a sun there must be water underground water all underground minerals not a single mineral has been formed in this earth these are all stardust from some star it has came if you have the eyes to see in a single lump of soil you can see the entire universe it is interdependent it's not something that i am trying segregated from it so this law of interdependence is the something which finds expression in this universe we are discussing this because these are the things swamji will be speaking of in as he continues just to have an idea clear idea just we are just taking a few more examples. So this interdependence is a law of nature. So that speaks of the altruistic gene that I have to, the God to take care of his children has implanted the so-called paternal this maternal love, the mother's love for that the mother has no credit. She's bound to love. See in the entire creature, do you find any mother even in the animal kingdom? That who is not ready to give away the life for the children? What's the credit of the mother? We are built in such a way. The problem comes when the mother starts expecting that I love so much my child, when it grows up, it will take care of me. That's the thing which is called ignorance. That love was something which was a plan of the divine, which was acting through me, I'm just the instrument. I do my duty, I seek not, I avoid not. That as This love has no meaning. That means I don't, it doesn't mean that I simply sit in the corner, not interacting with the world. Neither I avoid nor I seek. I be a part of the huge game, which is going on by the Lord's will. I'm a part of it. I'm just an instrument. That's the resignation. That when there is some evil and the goodness has to prevail over it. There are some righteous wars. It has happened throughout the world. And now again, if you think yourself as the instrument, not as the that the ego, you don't allow it to just overshadow your uh, the so-called uh, the interest of the divine. The ego cannot shadow that. Then you will find there's a wonderful with a wonderful sense of resignation. You can continue with the war. The question of Keith and kin and all the things gets resolved. You know that the, actually it is the Lord working through him just think of the principle of any soldier who is ready to give away the life in the battlefield for the country he is giving away his presence his present for the future of the entire nation is giving away his present why the same thing the idea behind it is not that it is not me it is the common good for which i am fighting so bhagavad gita is also based on that that when the evil is trying to prevail, God actually is manifesting to take care of that by this dharmasthapana, by again bringing the righteousness in the world. And for that, he has to make someone his instrument. And once you understand your role as an instrument, the resignation comes. You take part in the war without the feeling of that this, this suffering or the feeling of hatred. Nothing comes then you can do the work without any attachment. So now you will understand that it's actually the Bhagavad Gita which Swamiji is quoting here. Even if he kills the whole universe or be himself killed, he is neither the killer nor the killed when he knows that he is not acting for himself at all. Therefore, Karma Yoga teaches do not give up the world, Live in the world, imbibe its influence as much as you can but if it be for your own neighbors or your own enjoyment sake, work not at all. Enjoyment should not be the goal. First kill yourself and then take the whole world as yourself. As the old Christians used to say, the old man must die. The man with that unripe ego, which is always saying, my, my, that should die. That ego should should be ripened, that this me, is not the center of the universe. This me has been implanted in this psychophysical existence by the Lord to, for some bigger plan which I even I don't understand. I resign to it and take part in it with the with the sense of accept not, seek not, avoid not, and that's the thing which is actually speaks of the karma yoga. So we'll continue uh, with the this This is a very one of the very. That as Swamiji is coming to the conclusion of the Karma Yoga, you know, that he has already taken. So these chapters you find extremely forceful, the last two, three chapters, where he's giving the message in a very direct manner. So we will continue with the remaining portion and you will find that discussion goes on on the same lines. And uh, after that, another two chapters will be there. by uh, And uh, that will conclude our study of the Karma Yoga. It will take a few more months. So with this, we stop our discussion today.